I might need to just say this. Maybe the reason why we're going through the book of John, maybe, is because of this season we're entering into. Like John 13 through the end of the book, probably my favorite piece of scripture in all of the Bible. And so um, to stand before you now sitting in John 13 is like, my heart is exploding next week. Beep, if you think today is gonna go long, just wait till next week. It's all I'm gonna see. You guys aren't laughing at that. I don't understand why you're not laughing at a long time tomorrow, next week. But anyways, today we're back in John. Uh, we've been back in John now for the second week today because uh, Josue did a great job of leading us through this picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. You guys remember this phrase that he kept using of, of disciples stoop, and it's all about uh, really how Jesus has modeled this out for us, that he's washing us of debris, of dung, and what was the other D? Dust. Not just in our feet, but also in our soul. And so we pick up on this next piece of really how Jesus is gonna model out for us this beautiful love. But before we get there, let me remind us, as we do every week, what is the book of John all about? Why are we in the book of John? John himself says it in John 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in your believing these things about Jesus, you may have life in his name. So today, we're gonna to be reminded that life is found in the name of Jesus. We're gonna be reminded that, that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And in fact, he says that in verse 19. I'm telling you these things so that you will know that I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that was promised. How does this then help us see that Jesus is Messiah? And what kind of Messiah is he? I want you to just imagine yourself having spent three years building into a team. I want you to imagine yourself spending three years giving your life to people who have walked with you, who you have called them to truly pick up a different profession of trust. They were once fishermen and tax collectors. They were on the outside. And now all of a sudden, because of their relationship with you, people are seeking them out. They're wondering who you are through them. You've rebuked them along the way. You've called them Satan along the way. And you've also now called them, about to call them friend. And I want you to just imagine after three years of you pouring into them, you've planned a ceremony, a very uh, uh, celebratory ceremony that would be intimate with these guys. And what you're celebrating is that they have gone from bewilderment to trusting you from outcasts to brothers and you've won all of them over to trust you, even though you haven't really been clear with them. Hey, we're headed this way. Hey, you're gonna be homeless along the way. Hey, your next meal may just come at, at the hands of, of God himself. That over these three years, now all of a sudden you've won them over to trust you, everyone except for one. And you don't kick him out. You instead continue to invite him to come near he was the one holdout, though, that never bought in. He was the guy that constantly had a better suggestion. Hey, we could have probably used that money to feed the poor, Jesus. He's the one guy that just always challenging, always negating, always suggesting something different. I know that that's kind of your plan, Jesus, but wouldn't it be better if we did this? You did all you could to win him over. You even uh, gave him the money to manage. That would be a pretty big step of trust. Trust. 
And hopefully, in turn, he would trust you. But you get to this final night, and all of a sudden, you realize, and you know, matter of fact, you've known all along, that he was never going to trust you. What do you do with the people that you know you can't win over? I guarantee you it's different than what Jesus did. Because when he sits with his guys in this intimate ceremony, he knows his enemy is amongst them. And this intimate celebration now has this kink that yes, he expected, but when there's an enemy amongst you, especially in an intimate celebration of the Passover, of this celebration, this acknowledgement, this remembrance of this journey of Israel, that the, the lamb that would be sacrificed and his blood would be put over our doorposts, that's an intimate time with his guys. That's what they're celebrating. And all of a sudden, his enemy is there. I wonder what you would do. Because this is the scene in the upper room with Jesus, his disciples, Judas, and now Satan himself is in the room. What would you do? Because Jesus handles this situation with grace. He comforts his followers. He confronts his betrayer. He dismisses Satan and all along, he encourages and instructs the faithful. See, today's text is challenging and encouraging. It is encouraging for us because God is sovereign over our salvation, over our suffering, and over Satan. That's why it's encouraging. It's also challenging because God is sovereign over our salvation, over our suffering, and over Satan. And he'll allow some things that we don't understand, we may never understand but if ever we want to get comfort, we can come back to John 13 and realize relational suffering, circumstantial suffering, betrayal, all part of life. How did Jesus handle it? Perhaps there's some lessons in here for us. Jesus remains steadfast. See, the thing about Jesus is that he was on a mission to seek and save the lost, that when we start talking about what he's going to endure this night, this, this idea of him, him being sovereign over all these things, and yet also letting some really terrible evils happening, there's a betrayal that's going on, but it's all underneath the sovereign hand of God. And as he remains steadfast, the thing that he is steadfast to is his mission, See, his mission is to seek and save the lost, and Jesus' mission is unstoppable. Let me show you what I mean. John 13, verse 18, we just read it, I'll read it again. It says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. What's about to happen has been planned out from long ago. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a quote from Psalm 41. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I am the Messiah. So when you can look back on this, and they did, many times and many days later, they would look back and be like, oh yeah, when he said that, after, usually after he was resurrected, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, not to condemn the world, but to bring salvation to those who were already condemned. And that's you and me apart from Christ. To bring those who loved the darkness into the light. But Jesus acknowledges right here, not all will respond. 
So you can make the gospel as clear as you can. And dare I say that like as clear as we make the gospel throughout our lives, as we engage our networks and in, in, in the nations and our neighborhoods, as we make the gospel as clear as we can, not one of us will make it as clear as Jesus did. And yet Jesus didn't push away his enemy, Judas. He knew he was there all along and he brings him close. He brings him near to be able to see. But this is the reality. The emphasis right here isn't on Judas's choice to not believe. The emphasis here is on the choice of Jesus. For I know the ones whom I have chosen. See, in his steadfastness, of his mission, he is sovereign over our salvation. And he is sovereign over all those that he would save. And he knew all along that Judas was not one of them. You see, I think for us, we have to be reminded again and again of these types of passages because they're really difficult for us to accept. We want a, an economy that's fair. We want an economy where, where we get what we deserve with God. But when we kind of peel back the layers of our own sin, when we start to realize really how deep we are in it, how really we are more like Judas than like Jesus, we realize we don't want fair. We want mercy. And that's exactly what God gives in his son. You see, for us, we need to be reminded of this passage. We also need to be reminded that we all once were blind. And Ever, I don't know if you've ever been around a blind person, but they don't get to see just because they chose to open up their eyelids. See, there's a deficiency in their biological system that doesn't allow them to see. Instead, if a blind man is going to receive sight, there has to be something outside of himself or herself to be able to see. And what God says is that the power of God is that he changes blind people into seeing people, not eyelids closed to eyelids open. That's a huge difference. And he says that that happens based on his selection, his choosing of his people that some will see and some will not. And for us, we gotta be reminded that even in Jesus' journey, there were people following him that said they followed Looked like they followed. Did everything like the rest of the guys. I mean, after all, it was Peter that Jesus called Satan, not Judas. At least not yet. Jesus is not caught off guard by this, however. He's not caught off guard by any of our salvation, any of our rebellion, any of our sin. Instead, that's the reason why he came. And for us, we have to be reminded here that Jesus' sovereignty over salvation has been hinted at since the beginning of the book of John. I want you to just see like six or seven verses. I don't even know how many there are, but there are several verses here of Jesus knowing there is a betrayer amongst them from the get-go. John 6, 64 would say this, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 71 of verse six. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is early on in the story. It goes into verse uh, four of chapter 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him. And then here at dinner in verse two of chapter 13, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. When Jesus is praying at the end of his life in John 17, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, Father, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them was, has been lost except the son of destruction. Why was he lost? So that the scripture might be fulfilled, that the plan of God might be fulfilled. How can Jesus be so certain in all of this? Well, he's Messiah. That's what he says in verse 19. I'm telling you all this now so that you will know that I am he. He's sovereign over all things, including who is and who isn't a true child of God. See, John 15, 15 and 16 would say this. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Hear this, church. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. You see, Jesus knows who is a believer. He knows who's faking it along the way. He knows also not just who is a believer and who's not, but he also knows that his disciples are going to need this night in John 13 to look back on. Why else is verse 20 here? Verse 20 actually doesn't make sense to me if not for he knows he needs his guys to look back on this night when he was betrayed when they deserted him. Why do I say that? Because verse 20 says this in John 13 back there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one uh, I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He all of a sudden goes from, I know who's gonna betray me. In verse 21, he's gonna say, hey guys, I know that one of y'all is gonna betray me, but in the middle of all that, he talks about sending. He knows that we today, in 2019, need to be reminded we are a sent out people. Why well, I could say to Angie when she's baptized, hey girl, this is your call. And all y'all are like, man, that's kind of like harsh. No, for all of us, this is our call. We cannot cleft out of being a missionary. We also can't comfort out of being a missionary. That's who we are as the people of God. He not only knows who's a believer, but he also knows that they need nights like this, that they, they need to be reminded, just like we need to be reminded, that they see a God who knowingly sent his firstborn son into the world to die so that we may live. He will send his disciples out into the dark. They too will suffer. They will be betrayed. They will be handed over. And when they suffer, when we suffer, we must also remember it is, God's, it is by God's design. When we get betrayed, we can remember this time how Jesus loved Judas. When we get handed over to death, perhaps, certainly to ridicule or perhaps pushing out of a community. When we get Subjected to defeat, we have to remember the words of Jesus, not just this night, but also the words that came right before this night in John 12, which say this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For if anyone serves me, he must follow me, do the things that I'm doing, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, th now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name.
See, us too, right? We're the sent out missionaries of God. It's not optional for us. We don't graduate into our holiness, into being missionaries. As soon as God saves us, he says, I want you to get baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit who sends you out. Go and make disciples. And as you do, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. So here's the thing. You and I are never gonna find rest until we realize that we're actually immersed into this new identity of family, of servant, of missionary being sent out. We will never rest until we realize this is who we are. It's what God called us to be, much less go do. We'll never find rest. Uh, uh, I can never say this, the name. It's Philemon or Philemon. I, just, I don't know why I have Nelly in my head when I say that word, but like Philemon. Anyways, Philemon 6 Philemon 6 will tell you, you will not find rest, truly, until you go out and share your faith, until you go out and, and find the comfort that there is in growing by sharing. So you may say to yourself, man, that sounds hard. I don't think I can do that. I'm not equipped. I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be awkward with my family or my friends. I don't want to lose my family or my friends. I don't want to suffer. Friends, let your newly washed feet remind you of that which was given to you freely. Let your newly washed feet remind you of what you don't deserve, full acceptance into the kingdom of God. Not because of your own cleanliness or your own uh, power or your own performance, but because of the purity which God gave you when he sent his son to die for you and to wash you of the dirt of the debris and of the dung that Josue talked about so beautifully last week that is not just in our feet but in our soul. God sent Jesus who braved your rejection, your rebuttals, your rudeness. He sent Jesus to bring you the gospel and now here you sit. You sit at the table this last supper where you're enjoying food and drink the food that truly is the manna from heaven in Jesus himself, the food that will always satisfy and sustain your soul. And here you are drinking from the vats of God's goodness and provision, from the well that will never run dry. And God has so abundantly provided for you, what will you do with it? See, that's the first challenge right here. From the get-go, we are gonna be challenged. Will we come to Jesus with our own agenda and with our own, you know, kind of compartmentalized hearts, much like Judas did, only to be sent away like Judas, or will we go to him begging for mercy and saying, Lord, do with me what you will, as long as you would just have me? So when we have that posture, then when he sends us out, we'll go. We'll speak will suffer for the name of Jesus because we can look back on this night as the fuel for which we can do these things. We are challenged from the start, but we're also reminded that God's on a mission and Jesus' mission is absolutely unstoppable. He will do the things that he has chosen to do. But also, in that mission, we are to be grateful that Jesus' love is unreasonable. Jesus' love is unreasonable. 
Um, if you look at the events of this night, they blew me away this week again and again. I want you to see some things. I'm going to put some pictures up on the screen. Not yet, but let me just read some scriptures because there's some beauty in these details. Verse 21, look what God continues to say. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. It's not an if, it's going to happen. And he's talking to his guys that have followed him for three years, the most intimate guys, the guys like his best friends that have been following him for three years. He goes, one of y'all, not one of them, one of y'all is about to betray me. Now, verse 22 will tell us that this is set up a panic, right? This is just, they just start freaking out. They just start looking at each other. Like, can you see Peter, the dude? Like, can you see Peter being like, just staring at people and be like, go ahead, look away. I know it's you. Go ahead. You just look away. You don't break on talk with me. Can you see it? And you can also see some other people that are like, okay, don't look down. Like, whatever I do, I'm gonna look guilty if I look down. If I'm out here going like this, Jesus said, one of you is gonna betray me. And if you're doing this number, you're it. Like, that's it. Judas, you can guarantee he ain't made eye contact with anybody. But you can just see this panic in 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. He says it. He's like, hey, I'm about to get betrayed. Oh, by the way, it's one of you. And they're looking at each other like, uh, me, you, me, you, me. They're like, look at what happens next. Verse 23. Here's some details that we need to understand to see what kind of unreasonable love God has. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't have to go, I don't have time to go into this, but this is, this is John, the gospel writer. He's also the youngest of all the disciples. He is the one that lived into his 90s. He wrote the book of Revelation in his old age as he was uh, banished to an island to go live alone for much of his adult life. But he's pretty young. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, he's reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him. He he says, hey, uh, could you ask Jesus of whom he was speaking? Verse 26, so that the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So here's what, I don't know, centuries of culture have shown us that this would look like. Uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper. You guys have seen this? Is it up there? No? There it is. You guys have seen this? You probably haven't seen it, but like you've seen pictures of it. You've seen something of it. This is the picture that we have of Jesus in uh, the Last Supper. He's sitting at a table. He's sitting in a chair. Apparently, they're all crammed up on one side of the table. I don't know how that works, but that's not how it works in my family. And, and, and he's just kind of explaining, and there's some people arguing in the side. The problem is this is not at all the night. Number one, it's daytime in the background. Beautiful, beautiful countryside there in Jerusalem. So we, we can start to see, like, this is just not accurate, right? So this is more likely the setting that would have been there on this night as they're celebrating Passover, this kind of squared out table. If you'll notice, there's these, these beds that are there, and so they would have been lay, leaning on their left elbow, laying down, and they would have been eating with their right hand, Okay. There was no one there that was like a lefty. That's this is not how it worked, okay? They're on their left elbow, and they're eating with their right hand. This is how this is going down, okay? Now, I want you to think about this. This is, mo- this is the best picture I could find of an accurate portrayal of what a dinner, a Passover dinner, may have looked like. Now, there's probably a lot of things on that table that they actually didn't eat, but just bear with me. So they're laying down on their left elbow, eating with their right hand. 
And I want you to see, most likely, this is the traditional setting for how this would have worked. The Paschal table was where the, um, uh, the elements were for Passover, so that would have been at the end. You've got the youngest, you've got the host, honored guest, the senior, and on around until the least of all these guests that would have been there. The scriptures are going to tell us who's sitting where, at least four of them. And I want to just kind of put before you three of those people. This is how we know where everybody is. So Jesus is the host, John the youngest. The reason why at a Passover dinner, the youngest would be next to the host because it was the, uh, the responsibility of the host to explain to the youngest what was going on at dinner. Very oral tradition. They're explaining to them what's happening. And so Jesus is there. He probably has G uh, John just at his right. If you look at the passage that we just read, Jesus is there with his, on his left and he's eating. That would mean if someone's gonna lean on him right here, John has to be right here. He has to be to his right in order for John to lean back and go, hey, who was it? Very intimate, right? Very intimate. It also means that Peter wasn't near them, that Peter was probably across the table and he couldn't talk to Jesus. And so he's like, hey, psst, ask him. Ask him. For once, Peter's not being like, who is it? Hey, psst. This is an intimate time. This is what we're talking about, the celebration of the Passover. Just, John, ask him. Now Jesus takes this morsel of bread and he dips it. Who can he give it to? Can he give it to Jesus? He can give it to John? Who can he give it to? There's only one person. So where was Judas? Seat of honor. I want you to think about that. Jesus' greatest enemy is in the seat of honor at the Passover dinner. He's there. Jesus has his back to him, not as a sign of being pushed out of community, but as a sign of, of trust. When you put your back to people, when you don't trust somebody, you're, I mean, y'all do this. You go into a restaurant, what do you do? You don't sit with your back to the door, especially you dudes, right? You sit so that you can see the door so you can know what's going on. Jesus sits with his back to the door, not in the trust of, G of Judas. He knows what's going on with Judas, but in the trust in his father's plan of what's going on. What can we take from this? What can we take from this reality? Jesus' love is so unreasonable that he even allows the one who will betray him to sit in the seat of honor. We don't think that Jesus invited him to sit there, although he may have. It could have been that Judas kind of nudged his way, like Judas probably would have, to sit there. We know that he had a plan. We know that Satan had already started to uh, influence, influence Judas in this last hour. But I would say this. Let me just ask some real, real just practical questions. Who's in your seat of honor in your life? Is it someone that is trustworthy? Is it someone that doesn't belong there? Is it someone that's nudged their way to kind of sit next to you and to whisper to you like all the good things about you? Or is there a friend there that Proverbs would say is willing to, to wound you along the way so that your holiness will be made manifest in your life, that God would be made known in your life, speaking the truth to you, bringing the dark parts of your heart into the light? So for all of Peter's whatever, that you gotta know that was his heart. No, it won't happen. I'll stand by you forever. 
Mm, Pete, who is in your seat of honor? You're not a bad person if you don't like put untrustworthy people in the seat of honor in your life. You just need to know that. That's the first question, but also let me just observe this. Jesus knew exactly who was going to betray him. And he didn't push his enemy away from him. He loved his enemy all the way to the end, verse one of chapter 13 would say. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and bless those who persecute you. So in your inner circle, he knew Judas was not allowed into the inner circle of James, John, and Peter. You can allow some enemies to to chill with you and hang with you, but those trusted few, Judas was not allowed into that intimate circle, but he was allowed to hang so that he could bless him, so that when he tells us to go and love our enemies, bless those who persecute you, and when it goes south for us, we have to remember, it also went south for the Son of Man, the perfect one. Those of us who don't do things perfect, yeah, it's gonna go south. It's certainly gonna go south for us if it went south for him. Will we make room for those who disagree with us? Will we make room with, uh, for those who will betray us? Or will we only spend the time with those that we love to post about Facebook about? See, there are some people that we aren't so proud to like tell everyone that we're hanging out with. God hung out with those people too. And guess what? You're that person. We're that person that has betrayed Jesus. We're that person that will desert Jesus. And God calls us and says, come near. Come near. We're gonna celebrate the the, the Passover lamb where the, 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 the lamb that was given for the atoning sacrifice for all of Israel to go free. We're celebrating that moment right here. And so we're united by that truth, that the lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world is sitting down with his enemies, sitting down with those who did not earn a seat at the table, but those whom he chose to bring near. Jesus's mission is unstoppable. Jesus's love is unreasonable. We, don't, we can't make sense of it a lot of days. Finally, Jesus's power is unbreakable. Verse 27, actually, 26, Jesus answered and he said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And look at what happens next. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now I read that as a possession, satanic possession of Satan, I mean of of Judas. I want you to hear that that there was no Judas left, that Satan had possessed him. He entered into him and Jesus said to him, what, are you going to, what you are going to do, go do it quickly. Now check this out, look at what the disciples are doing. This is you and me. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, hey go buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. They have no idea what's going on. Why? Probably because of this seating arrangement. There was a little bit of a separation. Jesus was a little bit isolated between John and Judas. He couldn't even talk to Peter. Like, and no one else, for whatever reason, John over on the end of the table isn't standing up and being like, it's Judas. He's letting the 
plan of God play out as the youngest disciple amongst them, he would have certainly been intimidated a little bit by everybody else's senior status, certainly in that culture. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. See, Jesus' dealings with Judas, not It's not just that he's patient, but he's also powerful. Satan had entered Judas, possessing him, and Jesus commands him to go. I want you to see that. Nothing happens apart from the authority of Jesus. Nothing, no matter what evil you have suffered, nothing happens apart from the authority of Jesus, including the most heinous authority, the most heinous evil that has happened to Jesus himself. He could have squashed Judas right there at the dinner table. But instead he sends him out. He says, what you're gonna go do, do it quickly, get out. As if to say, just like we were just talking, as if to say, this application of the Passover lamb will not apply to Judas's heart. Though you have received the morsel, you have rejected the love. Be gone. I want us to remember that the darkness here, and it says, and it was night. That is not saying that it was night, although it was. John is cluing us into the spiritual reality of what's going on amongst the disciples and certainly in Jesus' life. There is a spiritual darkness that has just landed on them that they have never seen before. Literally, all hell is breaking loose on the Son of Man. And he's there And he's in absolute control. From the beginning, Jesus knew how this would end. And yet at the table, Jesus has made it clear. Nothing happens without his permission or apart from his authority. He knows in verse 18 and verse 21 exactly what's going down. And it is all to fulfill a greater purpose in 19 so that we would know that he's Messiah. It is the strong will of God that looked betrayal in the eye and allowed him to follow, to be near, to hold money, to have a voice, and in the midst of three years to shape 11 guys that would be responsible to bring the most powerful message to the entire world. He allows him to come in, to be gathered, to be instructed, to explain who he is to him again and again. He would reveal himself to him again and again. He would send him out on the mission field again and again. And he would wash Judas just like the rest. See, that takes a resolve and a power that few of us will ever understand. And I just wanna say this as we close and end for the day. When we are in the dark, Friends, there is a night coming. If you're not in night, perhaps you just got out of night or you're headed into night. At some point, night will fall in our souls. And when we are in the dark, it is the power, not the impotence, the power of God that will truly offer you the brightest hope. See, the temptation is when we get into the darkness, we go, why didn't you prevent this, God? But instead, God has always been a God that will allow some really heinous things to happen so that the greater purposes of our life and his will to be able to just unfold in the world. That doesn't make him evil or culpable for evil. Instead, it makes him a great author of good because we can trust him in all things, in comfort and in discomfort, and in good and in evil, 
in friendship that lasts forever or friendship that lasts for a short time and ends in betrayal. God is near and he has suffered these things, not just so that he can tell us to go and love people that are unlovable, bring people out of the margins into our circle, but so that he would experience these things and we could look back and go, man, because next week's coming. And what next week is, just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. It's in all that context of loving your betrayer, of loving those who would desert you, that he's gonna say that. He's bringing us near to remind us that we can be assured. Our broken heart has been seen. Our cries have been heard. Our wounds have been born upon the Son of God. And in his deepest night, Jesus looked, looked evil in the eye. And instead of squashing it, he allowed those motions and those, those events to get put into place, those that would cost him even his own life. So whatever night we're in or headed into or coming out of, my prayer is that we would trust in the light of the world. Bring us hope to be our comfort, to be our joy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're at table now. We're leaning next to you. We're puzzled. We're wondering how it is that you've allowed Judas to be amongst us. How it is that you've known all along, you've been saying it all along, that he's the guy. It's only now in our your final hour that we can even start to see a glimpse of what you've been doing, bringing your enemies close, bringing those that pretend to be better than we are close so that we would be in this community of God, that we would be changed by the Son of God himself. Lord, before we leave this place, would you remind us of your goodness? You see, when Judas begins in on this dark night. The enemy is near. He is crafty and trying to sway and slither his way into our lives and into their lives, the lives of the disciples. But you're there. You're in control. You know what's happening. And you do everything you can to stop it Within the, the, within the will of the Father. So the hard part about John 13, Jesus, that you remind us is that you didn't step in right away and prevent death. Instead, you used death to provide resurrection. May we be a people. Help us, Father. Help us be a people that in our, our vision of you, we don't just cry out to you for comfort and preservation, but that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you didn't prevent us from that, but instead that in those moments you're there. You're speaking truth to us. You're comforting us. You're providing the way out for us. You're providing for us. It's in those dark moments that we need to be reminded of your power, of your resolve, of your goodness. So help us. Whatever we're headed into this week, help us. We need you. May we respond now by the power of your spirit and for your glory. Amen.